0: Welcome back to That's Helpful with me, Ed Stott. If you're anything like me, you will be constantly misplacing your keys, forgetting people's names and overlooking meetings in your diary. I think I've done that twice this week already. Now, these kind of things, they make me worry about my brain and whether things like my memory are getting worse. And it can be even more concerning as we age. There is so much information out there when it comes to brain health and keeping our brain working at the top of its game as we go through life and helping those around us too. You know, parents, this is a huge issue with your family, but what should we actually be doing and how do we know the difference between normal brain burps and genuine cognitive decline? Well, Dr. Ginny Mansberg is the author of Save Your Brain and she, obviously, you, you'll probably know her and seen her around. She is a doctor as well and she has taken a a deep dive into the science behind the brain and the things we can do to take care of it. Thank you so much, Denise. So, Can you tell me, just to put all our minds at rest, what's the difference between normal cognitive decline and signs of something more concerning like dementia?
1: Well, it's all part of the same spectrum. I mean, literally, you just go along, you know, you're on the bus route, right? And, you know, first stop is just kind of normal brain aging. And then like, If it gets a little bit worse, we call it mild cognitive decline, which is just an earlier stop on the bus on on the way towards dementia. Interestingly, on everybody who gets diagnosed with mild cognitive decline actually ends up going all the way to dementia station, which is really interesting. But if you look at you and I, like our chances of having dementia, they're pretty low. Like nearly all dementia happens in older people. Literally, the older you are, the more likely you are to have dementia and forgetting meetings, And forgetting where you left your keys is just called normal. (laughs) And and particularly (laughs) if you are stressed and sleep deprived, like put that on steroids. But if you look at your car keys and go, I kind of know I've seen these before, but I'm not quite sure what to do with them. Panic now. (laughs) That's when you go and book (laughs) the appointment with your doctor and just go, I think I'm having a problem with my brain.
0: Yeah, I found that really reassuring, the fact that you say, you know, if you forget your car keys... That's totally fine. It's when you find them and you don't know what to do with them that's the problem. And I found that really—I have repeated that to so many people this week once I found it out because I know heaps of people do this and they get really panicked that something is going on with their brain. Um, is it ever too late to start taking care of our brains and start putting in to place a few of these? Um, things that we're going to talk about later. Is it ever too late to start putting in these good precautions for our brain health?
1: It's not that it's too late and it's that you get what we call diminishing returns on your investment. So if you are like going to change your diet, doing that particularly in midlife, 40s, 50s, 60s, that kind of age gives you great dividends. Doing it at 70, when you're now in panic stations and you realize that something's not quite right with your brain and used to be a wizard mass and now like the simplest calculation is just stumping you, i'm not saying you won't do anything but it's limited right because by the time you get the kind of symptoms that we're talking about there is so much brain damage you know there's so much brain damage 20 years before you even get any symptoms so the reason why i wrote the book was because i think everybody starts to think about the brain that they take for granted when they're in their 70s but it's like literally it'll make a minimal difference at that point but at my age i'm in my mid-50s amazing
0: yeah that's so reassuring and really empowering too to know that the things that we're doing now are going to make such a difference Um, one of the things that all the experts you've spoken to say is essential is exercise This isn't surprising, I guess, what we're hearing, but why is it so important? And does the kind of exercise that we're doing matter? So
1: you would not believe this is a really complex question and there's a lot to unpack with that. So most of the data that we have where we look at people who do stuff in their 40s and then follow them up into their 80s comes from What we call cohort studies so we look at big groups of people and it's really easy to do that for people who live in an island in crete or in okinawa in japan because there's not a lot of variability between the people and then we can look at the entire community and go okay they all walk everywhere they have lower risks of yada 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 to do studies where let's say i put you in a study and i want to look at what you're going to do now you're super young and i'm going to now follow you for the next 60 years Am I going to ask you every day? Am I going to put you on an app? Well, we didn't have those 50 years ago anyway. But we know that we humans are notoriously appalling at actually getting real with ourselves about how much exercise and what we've done and what we eat. And if I asked you what you did yesterday, chances are you get it wrong. We know this from multiple studies. But if I ask you, if I get you into the clinic once every year and I, you're in my study, I'm going to ask you, so what have you been eating over the last year? oh my goodness, like what have you been eating at over the last year? Like we're going to get it wrong. And you have good days and bad days. So to look at exercise, unless you're one of those rare people who sticks to a routine like, you know, you do Pilates at 6 a.m. three days a week, you go for a run with your running club every Sunday and you do, you know, weights every Tuesday and you do that for 40 years. I can't study you. And I'm saying all of this because, Actually, the evidence to show that exercise helps is like you can put it on a postage set. It's really, really, really lacking. <laughs> right, but, yeah. So what we do instead of that is we do studies where we look at certain markers in the blood that show that we're more healthful after certain things. Or we'll look at like an MRI scan on a 50-year-old after six weeks of exercise. But is that evidence the same as what happens long-term? Having said all of which, and there really is no good evidence for it, that is actually scientifically validated for exercise and dementia. It was, I, you know, I interviewed 22 experts to write Save Your Brain because, let's face it, I'm no neuroscientist. Um, I'm just investigating. Um, and it was the only thing that they were all doing. There were lots of things that none of them were, that they were all not doing, but the only thing that they were all doing for their brains and specifically for their brains was exercise. Why? Because it just makes sense. Even though we don't have the mm. the pure evidence So now am I going to unpack this for you and tell you which exercise? Hell no. I've got absolutely no idea. I can't tell you from any scientific space. And so I would say what I would say to people who are looking to do exercise for anything. We know what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So exercise, yes. Do it. Push yourself a little bit. We know that high intensity, getting your heart rate up is good for your heart. It's good for your brain. Do it as often as you can fit it in because we're all so freaking busy since the pandemic we all now have eight jobs and we're now sitting 25 hours a day on our butt on our butts in front of a zoom call like let's get real do what you can when you can in a way that you enjoy it if I tell you that you've got to go lift weights in a gym I personally don't like gym I feel very intimidated with all those muscly men in there I don't I don't love it same but I love going for a walk with a friend right so you do what you can do as much as you can And don't beat yourself up for what you can't do because that life's life's too short. Um, And definitely being depressed is one of the worst things for your brain. So definitely don't get depressed about how little exercise you're doing.
0: I really like that. That's why I always think, you know, the best exercise is the exercise that you'll actually do, right? And I think that there are so many fun ways to move your body that you actually enjoy And I think so many people think that exercise has to be painful and feel shit and suck. And it's just not true for it to be rewarding. You can do something that you truly enjoy and get more benefits. Absolutely. I Like a hundred. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) same good and so how about our diet and our brains you know like i think you just um shed a little bit of light on it when you talk about the way that these studies are done you know we we all hear about you know the mediterranean diet or the 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 japanese are so healthy but like you said those studies are very specific what do we know about our diets when it comes to our brains so
1: again most of the data comes from what we call cohort studies so We just have a look at everybody who lives in Okinawa is a big one in Japan or certain islands in Crete which is where we get a lot of our evidence around the Mediterranean diets. and we've tried to unpack what it is and the reality is it's hard to know whether there's a specific vitamin in certain foods so that we could just take that as a supplement and and eat a macas. or whether it's the whole ritual of sitting down together as a family but what we do know is that the evidence for Mediterranean diets is so overwhelming for basically everything from mental health to physical health to cancer avoidance and absolutely for dementia avoidance and it's the one for which we have the most evidence and out of all of the um experts i was speaking to most of them adhere to a mediterranean diet there is also a diet which is meant to target high blood pressure which gets you to increase calcium and potassium naturally in your diet so that's fruit veggies have got lots of potassium and calcium for your bones, but there's a, lot, it's a bit of dairy in that, which is quite interesting. But also dairy alternatives like soy don't get sucked into a nut milk because most of them don't have calcium in them. Um, but, you know, calcium and potassium-rich foods at the expense of sodium-rich food, think package. anything If you have to open a packet, a packet to get it, it's probably got sodium in it. That's not good for you. That has good diet evidence for preventing dementia as well. But when I looked at all the different evidence, um, all the different studies around diet, I basically came to this conclusion, good diet is good, bad diet is bad. Most of us know what shit we shouldn't be eating. Oh, I hope you don't mind. I've got a foul mouth, so I drop
0: No swear please, all
1: same. the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, So don't eat shit. Eat good stuff. Eat good stuff that you like. If you hate kale, don't eat it. There are other things out. <laughs> there are other ways to get folic acid into your diet, but I would eat good stuff within the realms of some specific things the evidence for coffee is fairly compelling um, and particularly wow. around, yeah, and the evidence is mostly around caffeinated coffee and it seems to be that the sweet spot is probably three, four a day, which is quite a lot. Um, but you can have a combination of tea and coffee, which is also super good. So um, caffeinated tea, again, is, is really good for you. The evidence around alcohol seems to be settling around what we call a J-curve. So a little bit is probably better than being a complete teetotaler. But having a lot of alcohol and at that point, once you have three or more a day standard drinks, which is 100 grams of wine, by the way, 100 mils of wine, it's not a lot um, in Australia, your risk of dementia goes up exponentially. So just picture the letter J where having zero alcohol is actually worse for you than having just a little bit, one to two drinks a day, maximum probably about 10 a week, which is part of the Mediterranean diet. Red wine is their kind of thing that they do.
0: Well, wow, that's really interesting because I'd say that so many people are like, oh, I'm going off coffee. I'm going off alcohol. And obviously we know that, like you say, a large amounts of al- alcohol is quite clearly not healthy, but that's really interesting. Very reassuring. I like that. And so um, the other thing that you did like on that diet piece is you really investigated supplements. And in particular, you spoke to like the world's leading expert on omega-3s. What did he have to say?
1: Yeah, so um, that's Professor Yasin Hussein, an amazing guy. So he's out of Stanford, or UCLA actually, in, um, in Stanford, California. And he actually does not take fish oil supplements or omega-3 supplements. He does because there's just no evidence for them. So it's hard to know when you look at people, cohort studies that show that people who have a lot of fish have less dementia. And we know the role that omega-3s from fish and seafood play actually um, in brain health. But does that mean that you can pick it out, put it in a, through a factory, a manufacturer, put it in a capsule and take it um, instead of fish? There's really no evidence for that. So he has one to two serves of oily fish, like salmon, swordfish, tuna, a week. He did say that if he didn't like oily fish, he would probably take an omega-3 supplement because even though we don't have any evidence that it helps, there's probably no evidence that it does any harm either. Um, I... I'm okay with that. I think you just got to be really careful not to um, deduce too much from the fact that people who eat fish have good health. It's just that it's a very long bow to draw and to say that a you know, a supplement is just as good as a healthy diet. We don't have any evidence for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other supplements that you take a look at that maybe you would consider or do you think that overall supplements aren't worth the money and can't replace a healthy diet?
1: So if you have a nutritional deficiency, you should absolutely take a supplement. So for a lot of your listeners, Ed, they'll have iron deficiency. We know that this is a women's issue. So any woman who is regularly menstruating is losing iron, sometimes big amounts of iron. So just FYI, a normal period in Australia is 10 to 60 mils. Now, I want you to, that's for the total. That's for from the start, day one to the end of day five. You should have no oh, more... Oh, wow. I've never heard that before. Yeah, so the average in Australia is 30 mils, which is just over a tablespoon from start to finish. 60 mils, anything above that, you are going to start to lose iron at a rate that will be depleting your body of your iron. So if you have an, a, a deficiency or if you've been tested for folic acid or B12, very common. B12 deficiency is very common in my uh, surgery. B12, by the way, you get from any animal product. So it's dairy, uh, eggs, fish animals but if you are vegan you will not have enough b12 it's impossible for you to get it so you can take it as a supplement you can have it as a a tablet there is a condition called pernicious anemia which sounds horridious and all it means is that you just it's it's fine Um, you just don't absorb vitamin b12 through your stomach and you can get it as a spray under your tongue from a pharmacy anywhere it's totally fine you can get injections from your doctor but who steps up for extra needles i don't get that but you know you can just put it under your tongue you'll absorb it that way So, yes, any supplement, any deficiency that you have should be met by supplement. But if you have a good diet, there is no evidence that on top of your diet, taking a supplement really does too much for anyone. Like it's a a truckload of money, this stuff. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm, you know, I am concerned. I would rather you go put it into your hairdo fund and just go have a nice... (laughs) You know, get get your hair done. Feel great. Buy an extra pair of shoes. I don't really want you spending it on nothing that you're going to wee out.
0: Yeah, just really expensive pee at the end of the day too. Yeah, totally. And so, how do hormones affect our brain health? And I think this is particularly important for women.
1: It is. So we know that menopause is the day, and it's a single day that is twelve months after the first day of your last period that you ever have in your life? How do you know it's your last period in your life? Because 12 months later, when you haven't had one, you go, oh, that must have been it. So it's a (laughs) diagnosis you can only make in retrospect. And unless you're a little bit OCD, you've got no idea because you can't remember. And if you're lucky, you can kind of remember what you were doing and think, yes, I think it was so-and-so's birthday and I had my period. And you can maybe work out that it was sometime in April, but you are not all over it. The (laughs) Up to 10 years, that is the lead up to your to menopause. Your ovaries are doing weird acrobatic stuff. It's just, <laughs> it's it's going all over the place. And sometimes <laughs> she's performing really well. Sometimes she's not doing so well. So you are riding the, ro- the hormonal roller coaster, which we call perimenopause. That is just not a lot of fun. So it's the peak time for insomnia for women, peak time for mood disorders. A lot of women think that postnatal depression is the peak time or that, you know, adolescent girls have peak risk for uh, mental health disorders in Australia, around the world, 45 to 55, pe- peak time for anxiety, depression, and suicide. And that really tends wow. to start during your peri years. I know a lot of women don't realise that. I That is very, it. very, it's huge. And pretty much any woman who's ever had depression before or anxiety before or who's had unresolved trauma in her life, it's going to come and bite you in the bum. And it has these particular characteristics that peri-rage its rage like you get so irritated by people including your partner like it's peak time for divorce there are a lot of like women who are happily married couple of kids doing really well in their in their careers and all of a sudden quit their job like literally over this stuff quit their job quit their marriage all of a sudden they're on their ass now they've got some financial problems as well so it's a really really important thing to know so does it affect your brain oh hell yeah and in some studies up to eighty percent of peri women experience what we call brain fog. So anyone who's had COVID probably knows a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't. You feel like you sound like an idiot. You forget words. You forget people's names. You go, um, "What's this thing?" It's the thing you read. It's got lots of paper <laughs> in it. It's it's a book, but you forget <laughs> that it's called a book, um, and you feel really dull. So you fall off this confidence cliff as well. We know that. Um, it's not directly a peri thing, but the more the worse your hot flushes, the worse your night sweats, and that you're in, and the worse your insomnia, and the worse your mental health, the worse your brain fog. So it's kind of caused by all the other tangential things that are part of peri, and that means that brain fog is just. I mean, I see so many women who are going through perimenopause in my clinic, and I mean, it's just the main thing that I see. So um, it's it's really 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 huge. In terms of dementia, what's really interesting is women who go through menopause early and you definitely have w- women listening to us today who have reached me- menopause early and are so horrified and so ashamed. Did you know that 14% of Australian women will hit menopause before they're the age of 45 and about 3 to three to 4% of women will hit menopause before the age of 40? So Naomi Watts just came out and talked about hitting menopause at 35. Lucky woman, she'd had two children, met the man of her dreams. But what about so many of my patients? That didn't happen for them. And they go off the pill when they meet some guy at 35 and just never get a period. And it turns out at some point while they're on the pill, they went into menopause. And they don't when they're getting hot flushes, they're in their 30s. So no one thinks of menopause. They're not getting their periods, they they're stressed. They've gone into menopause. And I promise you, if this is you, if you're listening to us and this is you, don't feel alone, don't feel ashamed, don't feel embarrassed. You do need to get help. And I'll tell you why. The risk of dementia is double and it is much worse. You have a much higher risk of heart disease, of bone fractures, of strokes. You need estrogen and you need to get on hormone replacement therapy. A lot of women. Hate it, particularly women in their 30s. They want to do everything naturally. I am fully supportive of that. But you need to make an informed choice about what being in menopause in your 30s and 40s means for your brain and for your heart. We also know that women who go through menopause at the average age of 51 in Australia, that if they go on to HRT, They, particularly within the first few years after menopause or ideally before they go into menopause, so to manage some of those perimenopause symptoms that we were talking about, the depression, the rage, the aches and pains, the the hot flushes, they have lower rates of dementia. So again, no one says you have to have it, but I'm telling you that you need to make an informed choice before you say, nope, I am only interested in natural solutions We doctors are here to support you in your choice. This is your body, your journey. I am not going to override ever anything that you want to do for your body. But please, please, please make your decisions from a place of information, not gut feel. Because what I did learn, Ed, writing this book more than anything, it just hit me like a train. Our brains are wired for efficiency and not accuracy. You ought to really think about that there are very complex neural connections that our brain is dealing with all the time and it needs to get you out of an earthquake away from a, a marauding invader of you know another from another tribe quickly and it needs to tell you good bad alert run lean in run away very very quickly and that means that a lot of the things that you want to go with your gut feel are being made from a position of um uh, of of quickness of, of of rapidity rather than, um, uh, rather than accuracy, and that's not good for you and your decision making tree.
0: That is really interesting and a really great thing to bear in mind. On that, are, is either gender more susceptible to to um, developing dementia?
1: So dementia is a women's disease. In Australia, it's the leading cause of death in women. So a lot of people don't realise that dementia is a fatal illness. It absolutely is. Murder your brain and you will die, um, ultimately. Mm. Um, and it's actually the second leading cause of death in men. Kind of it is because women live longer. So, and of course, the older you are, the more likely you are to get dementia. So there's just more women in their 80s and 90s to get dementia. Um, But also it's a bit more than that and it's definitely to do with having a sudden loss of estrogen and what that does to the brain. Although teasing apart exactly at a molecular level how that works is difficult to know exactly, but we definitely know that women are more susceptible to brain injury. So we get twice as much depression, we get twice as much anxiety, we are really prone to having mental health issues and also autoimmune issues as well and it's probably all to do with that.
0: Fascinating. This one really blew my mind. Tell me about the link between dementia and deafness.
1: Yeah, so this really freaked me out. And it (laughs) actually did make me think that for people in their 20s, one of the best things you can do right now is turn down the volume on your music and protect your ears. (laughs) So we know that being deaf is one of the biggest risk factors for dementia. And probably because you're isolated socially, you know, it really limits, you can't go out for dinner in, let's say, a crowded restaurant, that kind of thing. It's too difficult. And so um, what is really important is not only that you get your deafness diagnosed, but that you fix it. Because what we have done is in studies where we get people who do go on a hearing aid and those people who don't go on a hearing aid, having a hearing aid for deafness dramatically reduces your risk of dementia. And so as a result, we know that it is definitely the deafness that is causing your dementia. It's not just a symptom of dementia and that fixing your deafness also will fix your brain. Bingo, it's amazing.
0: Mm, Really interesting and a really great one to look out for, for your parents or older friends, you know, if you see, if you notice, because it's sometimes it's way more obvious to like the kids or friends that you're losing your hearing and like a really good one to speak up about if you are, you know, concerned about your parents' hearing. Um, So you touched on it there, but how important is socializing to our brain health?
1: Can I tell you how important? It is just so important. So I just want you to picture yourself walking in on your own to a work function, right? You maybe know 10% of the people there. So the first thing you do is you scan the room for a familiar face, right? So your brain's scanning, scanning, using the parts of the brain that look Mm. and identify, right? And then you find your people and you go up and you're trying to kind of read their body language and you're trying to read their, you know, their faces. They're maybe talking to someone you don't know and you don't want to interrupt a conversation. And then you get into the conversation and somebody comes and offers you some food and maybe a drink and you're distracted here and there and then you're making eye contact and you're reading their body language and then you're listening to what they say, they're processing what they say, then you hopefully come up with a wonderful and witty response. That is such hard work for your brain. Meanwhile, you're standing and you're thinking about the fact that, oh, you forgot to do a wee before you came out and where's the toilet. You are doing so many things with your brain at that time and it's partly why staying in the workforce is so important because you're actually socialising. Hmm.
0: That's really great advice. And so, um, in terms of the idea of like brain training, which for a time was like a really trendy thing to be doing. I mean, I even remember as like a 12 year old on the little Nintendo DS, you know, doing that brain training game. Is there any science uh, that backs this idea of brain training? There are some brain training games that
1: you can do that will give you very specific additional skills for a short amount of time. And then once you stop doing them, you lose them. The problem is that you shouldn't keep doing them forever because you've got that neuroplasticity. Now we want your brain to build new connections and, you know, get new skills. And the problem with brain training exercises, they're very solitary. You do them at home. A better brain training game is to go join a walking group, go for a walk with your friends and then have a coffee. And try and have a conversation with six people at once. And then like look around and admire all the cute dogs at the cafe and admire the cute babies and think, why have they not come with my coffee yet? So I would kind of, that is a better brain training game for me. And I would really prefer that. Plus, I would say it's much more enjoyable. You
0: remind me of this study. um, I did a little episode on why being a beginner is really good for you, which I'm really passionate about. And so there's this one study um, of adults age 58 to 86 and the people who took up courses like Spanish and music and paintings, new things, showed huge improvements in cognitive tests. And after
1: the courses, their abilities match
0: people who are 30 years younger.
1: So it's just building new brain connections, right? So Some people look at this and go, well, I'm not starting, you know, to learn Greek now. I couldn't do this. I don't have the time, which is, you know, a common refrain. It doesn't need to be overly academic. I am really happy if you just said to me, you know what, I have never read the sports section of a paper. I know a lot of people reading, (laughs) listening to us are going, what the hell is a paper? But, you know, (laughs) I've never read a sports column in my life. I personally don't speak sport. But what if you just read the sports column for one week? And by the end of the week, you'd go, oh, I actually know what they're talking about. In the beginning, you'd be listening, you know, looking at a, you know, a cricket report and you'd be going, I don't even know what they're talking about here. This is, you know, what is all this new language to me? If you normally listen to soft rock or, you know, pop songs, why don't you try and listen to heavy metal? I mean, just for one week. And it's, you know, while you're driving or while you're on the bus on the way to work, we're not talking about like taking it up as a passion and now, you know, going and travel, traveling for, you know, death metal concerts. <laughs> I'm just trying to get you into the point where initially when you try listening to heavy metal um, music, you'll be going, it all sounds the same. And then after a while, you can actually see that one song, they're very different to each other. You've got to train your brain to hear it. Just give yourself challenges every week like that, that are super easy, that, you know, it's not very taxing and no, you don't need to be a professor of Italian to actually improve your brain.
0: I love that. And so, you know, one of the things that we've seen a lot of news around, um, particularly Liam Hemsworth hit the headlines with this, is around testing for the genes that are linked to dementia.
1: Is this a good idea? Is this something we should be seeking out? So Liam and Hemsworth came out um, and declared that he had the APOE4 gene. If you haven't heard of it before, there are two A-P-O-E, little little e APOE4 genes Um, and you'll get one from mum and one from dad if you have it. And so if you have one of these genes, you have a slight increased risk of um, Alzheimer's disease. If you have one from each of your parents, you have a five to eight times risk of getting dementia in your lifetime. He didn't really say which one he had, whether he had two or one gene, but that really makes a big difference. Right now, the advice I would give to Liam is the same advice that I would give to everybody listening to us today look after your health, eat a good diet, don't drink too much, maintain your mental health, get enough sleep, blah, 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 right? (laughs) Get your hearing aids, own a dog. Um, But what I do think is coming is I think one day we will have a vaccine that you can probably get in your 30s and 40s that will prevent you from building up too much of the protein called beta amyloid in your brain that destroys your brain cells. So we currently have drugs that are called monoclonal antibodies. And what that is, is literally an antibody. We're all experts since COVID. So instead of it being an antibody to a virus, these were antibodies to the beta amyloid proteins that were building up in the brain. The problem with them was, so you literally took these drugs and you do an MRI and there was no longer any beta amyloid in the brain. Amazing, except that these people didn't do well at all. No difference in their dementia but it was given to them very, very late. They needed to have had a diagnosis of dementia in order to qualify for it. And by that stage, you are so far down the track with so much irreversible, irreplaceable brain tissue loss that we don't have the ability to help you. But what if we could vaccinate you against ever having this protein build up in your brain? And what if you could get that in your forties? Then it would be worthwhile knowing about it, like Liam Hemsworth, and because then we would go, you should have this vaccine to prevent dementia, and we could give that to you in your 40s. Now, such a vaccine doesn't exist, but I can I can tell you that by 2030 we will start to have our first massive onslaught of cancer vaccines, and they'll be so that you get rid of current vaccine uh, current cancers that you have. But we are developing vaccines against all sorts of this, and since mRNA technology driven by the the pandemic has come out I'm lucky enough to be able to occasionally look under the hood of some of the companies who are showing me some of the pipeline of development drugs I promise you it might be a bit late for me but someone who's listening in their 20s I'm pretty sure they're going to be able to be vaccinated against dementia so they can never have it so right now don't get the test there's no point it doesn't change anything do everything you can to avoid dementia anyway because it's the biggest cause of death in women You want to avoid it no matter what. And for free, everything that you do to prevent dementia will also prevent heart disease and cancer and diabetes and lung disease and arthritis. We can give you so much bang for your buck on that stuff. Don't change that. But one day, we'll have something else to give you as well. And I'm I'm so excited about that time for my kids.
0: Yeah, I love that. So optimistic, really exciting, amazingly clever people working on this. There's one other link that I want to talk about, and that's the link between blood pressure and brain health. This was absolutely mind blowing, too.
1: Wasn't it? Oh my God. And so that's the thing that to me as a GP was almost the most amazing thing. So, just for everybody who um, is listening to us, your blood pressure is expressed as number X over number Y. So, let's say normal is 120 over 80. And what that means is, When your heart contracts, it increases the pressure inside your arteries. That pressure is 120 millimeters of mercury over 80. That's the pressure in your arteries when the heart is relaxed. So, pump, relax, pump, relax, pump, relax. That's what that number means. And for a long time, we've known that it's the top number that it gives you all of your prognosis in terms of heart disease and stroke. Kind of don't worry about the bottom number as much. It's really the top number we need to think about. But what we have been doing until now is telling people that you need to have your top number kind of below 140 because that's the number where you really start to get a big increase in your risk of strokes and heart attacks. But guess what? A massive massive study, hundreds of thousands of people found that if we can lower your blood pressure to maximum 120 on the top number, so just even so 116, good. 126, nah, not so good. We can prevent 30% of dementia by that one step alone. So currently, a lot of us are going to the doctor, getting a blood pressure um, check and the doctors, it's a bit high, but it's okay. At 140, no, that is way, way, way too high. Anyone in their 30s, don't worry about listening to this. This is only for midlife men and women. But if you've gone, if you're listening to us and you're 40, And you've had your blood pressure checked and it was 137 and your doc said, no worries, that's fine. It is fine for strokes. It is fine for heart attacks. It's not fine for dementia. Get it down lower. Yeah, that might mean cutting out salt, cutting out processed foods, doing a bit more activity. You can't do it with that. Yeah, it's going to mean taking a blood pressure medication. 30% reduction in dementia risk. I'll take that. That's great.
0: A hundred percent. There was so much in the book that I just found absolutely mind blowing. We've discussed a whole heap of things here. Uh, should we be concerned if we can't fit absolutely every one of these changes into our lives?
1: No, I can't. I definitely can't. So <laughs> I like I like to think of um, save your brain as something like an all you can eat buffet of options of so things that can save your brain. Literally, do what you want. Don't do what you don't want. Don't don't do what you can't do just live the healthiest life that you can do the things that you enjoy we're here for a good time not only a long time um and just pick the pick the dessert off the salad of the buffet it's totally fine and you should not want to do everything in this book and you had a couple of
0: like really surprising quirky ones in there, uh like green spaces and
1: having a pet too i know who would have thought like literally there are studies that just literally like having a bird or a fish you know, like I'm all of because you just heard my dog so my you know I'm all about dogs <laughs> right and I'm all a, and you know quite frankly anything that you can pat that's fluffy is like so good for love. anxiety I'm just like all about patting things so <laughs> I love I love that and, so and and I, I personally find birds in cages like a little bit distressing it just doesn't work for me and I don't see the value of a fish I can't bond with a fish but you know I don't care that's my preference you know your preference like me I I absolutely love lizards good for you go out and get a pet it does seem that there is something about the circadian rhythm which is what something we didn't talk about but the circadian rhythm is you know waking up at the same time every morning you know going for your shower at the same time every morning even having your meals at the same time every day that is such a brain-saving kind of thing and it's part of the reason why staying in the workforce for as long as possible is really positive it's not just about the socializing It's about maintaining your circadian rhythms. If you have a dog and you think that you can have a sleep until 11 o'clock, think again. Your (laughs) dog's going to tell you otherwise. It's going to say, it's time for me to go to the toilet and for you to feed me some breakfast. Thank you very much. Let me just jump on your head. Um, So um, I think dogs are quite good because they keep you in a circadian rhythm.
0: Amazing. Ginny, thank you so much. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that's really vital to include?
1: No, no, I think literally, and you clearly read the entire book. Yeah, hopefully there's something in here um, that for everybody, we've only just skimmed the surface, but there is a lot in um, Save Your Brain that I'm hoping will be helpful for everyone
0: yeah i absolutely loved it i devoured it because i as i was saying to you before we start recording like i just love those simple things that make such a big difference you know there's no guilt there's no telling people off it's just these tiny uh, tweaks to your lifestyle that can make such an incredible difference and really help you to invest in your future love that yeah amazing Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Dr. Ginny Mansberg is the author of Save Your Brain. I will put a link to the book in the show notes because you're definitely going to want to get a copy of this. I am so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the series, don't forget you can join my Patreon for as little as $7 a month. You'll get extra episodes, more community and a sneak peek behind the scenes. Who doesn't want that? I will catch you again next week. Until next time, I'm Ed Stott and I sincerely hope that's helpful.